It's been way too long. Hello and welcome to another episode of State of the Nova Nation. I'm Eugene Rapay. He's Chris Danziel. Chris, I felt like Tuesday was a real heartbreaker and I felt like we let some people down. Yeah, we're uh, incredibly sorry to everyone out there. It just wasn't a good morning for all of us. We had just finished recording the podcast. It looked great. Sounded, you know, we thought we had one of our better episodes. Yeah. And then we put it, we reviewed the footage, reviewed the recording, and it sounded, I don't even know how this happened. I don't know what warranted this, but it sounded like a scratch CD. There was no salvageable audio, and we were just really frustrated about that. And we are so sorry. I know we had a few people tweet at us, text us, asking where was the new episode of SNN. And we are sorry that we had to leave you hanging without an episode on Tuesday. Yeah, and what made it even worse is that we had a uh, pretty killer preview for the Xavier game that happened on Tuesday on top of some other things, including a great rant by you that we may touch on later. Yeah, we might touch on it later, unfortunately. Might not be as good as the first time, hmm. but, you know, it was just, it was really, it was really tough. We tried to get another recording in before we went to the office. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. the recording equipment butchered that second redo again. So we were just left with nothing. And unfortunately, we had to not produce an episode for the first time. Hopefully, first and last time, we missed a day. And hopefully that never happens again. Yeah, our 24-episode streak came to an end. Here we are, episode 25, the redo. Hopefully, redo this version. time around, it goes smoothly. Yeah, hoping for the best here. Fingers crossed. Hopefully, we can deliver a good one today, make up for last time. And, you know, we got some things to recap, things to go over this coming weekend, especially with the Big East Marathon coming up. Mm -hmm. In other news, I got back on Snapchat. And let me tell you, I have no idea how to use it, to be honest. Yeah, it is a whole new ballgame. Because I I remember you went uh, off the grid a few years back. Oh, yeah. The last time I used it was 2014. I think it was the second day of stories being released. (laughs) And everyone was like, what is this new feature? This is pretty stupid. And I was like, oh, yeah, it is pretty stupid. I don't need this anymore. And I deleted it. I've come back. Not only do they have stories, they have messaging. You can get your news on there now. I'm just I'm just perplexed how this thing works. Yeah, they're, I honestly they're... don't know how to navigate it anymore. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're absolutely killing it. It was unbelievable. Like every, every new addition that they seem to add is always greeted with some extreme form of criticism. And then absolutely everyone just falls in love with it the next day. It's so funny. I'm following a few people. You know, it's just pretty cool, actually. You can get your news. It's it's awesome. I like it a lot. It's it's a pretty cool way to get up to date with some things and also stay in touch with some people. Yeah, for sure. I, I actually saw that you had added me on Snapchat a few days ago, and I was like, wow, this is awesome. And then I remembered that I had sent the request to you at least two years ago because I didn't realize you had went off the grid at the time. So it just sat there in purgatory for a very long time so thank you for finally accepting my friend request on snapchat oh oh yeah no i saw a few snaps from like last year i was getting caught up to speed i was looking oh at the people God. who added me i felt so bad because i'm sure some of these people thought i was just slighting them it wasn't that i honestly just wasn't on snapchat so i had to go really far back and accept some requests that's so funny yours is like it's like a time machine your account was like a time machine yeah if anyone wants to hop on <laughs> I mean, I had a test run because I didn't know how stories work, so I put up a story yesterday. It's at Irapay5. I don't even think I should say at because it's not Twitter. But hey, you know, getting used to it. Yeah, welcome yeah. back. <laughs> so as I get back on Snapchat in 2017, three years later, you know, there was another streak that hopefully gets to continue. But going into this week, we have remained on Podomatic's Top 75 Sports Podcast Rankings 
for 12 straight weeks now. Yeah, hopefully uh, we can keep the streak going with, with just one episode this week. So. Yeah, hopefully we can hold it down. Hopefully we can please a lot of people out there listening, craving for that SNN. And we are so sorry again that we missed it. Let's get on to the news, right? Yes, let's do it. So the Wildcats kept their streak going as well. They now have won 46 straight pavilion games, tying a school record. They beat number 15 Xavier in a battle of top 15 ranked teams. Villanova won 79 to 54. At first, I'm not going to lie, it looked like the streak was in trouble. A little nervous watching the game. Nova wasn't able to knock anything down early on. And Xavier, who's terrible, or I shouldn't say terrible, but they're not that great at the three-point line, they were able to get their long-range shots going. Of course they do. Oh, yeah, yeah, of, co- of course. Like, well, you know, we, we, we talked about how they weren't that great, and of course they just had to shut us up. Yeah, of course. Villanova way. Nova trailed by eight in the first half after a pair of Trayvon Blewett free throws to give Xavier a 24-16 lead. With just under 7.30 remaining in the first half, the Cats responded with a 12-0 run to take the lead, and they never gave it back from there. You know, what stuck out to you in this whole game? The fact that we were actually able to respond to a bad shooting night, at least initially. We obviously came out flat, as you mentioned. I think we were down 9-2 at one point, and we weren't hitting anything early on, and time in the first half was elapsing. We're like, come on, guys, kind of struggling here. We need to get on a roll, or else Xavier might run us out of our own building. But then you look, and it's like, well, it's only really 9-2, so, I mean, we're still in it, and it's still pretty early. We have, we're eventually going to hit our shots. The law of averages says so, and it did. And it was it was great because... We actually got some good depth production across the board. I thought Dante had a great game. 10 points, 4 or 6 shooting, 4 boards, 3 assists. Played with a lot of energy, which is exactly what we needed. Speaking of energy, the pavilion was very live. And I have to give everyone their props. It seemed like a few students were back. Yeah. I, I, yeah. So that, that definitely helped out. Because of that, we were able to feed off the energy and really run with it. We even got to see Part B bench mob in there, too. It was definitely lively. It did look like there was a good chunk of students. You saw it on the broadcast. And, you know, usually when students sit right in the middle of the bleachers towards the bottom, there seemed to be a pretty good crowd or pretty decent crowd there to kind of show everyone how it's done. Yeah, thank God. You know, the Wildcats in the beginning, like I said, made me a little nervous, but they really turned it on in the second half. Man, you know, they held Xavier to shooting just under 30% and if you're Xavier, that's uh, that's pretty embarrassing. That's not what you want to demonstrate as a top 15 team. No, and they don't exactly have a top end defense. I mean, they have a good defense, but it's not it's not exactly an elite defense. So if you're going to be shooting under 30, percent your chances of winning are are pretty pretty low. We talked about how even though Villanova blew out Marquette last Saturday at the Wells Fargo Center, they gave up a lot of shots, and Marquette. They actually had a pretty good shooting performance. You know, when Villanova's shooting 60%, you're not going to lose that way. So it was kind of overshadowed that Marquette shot the ball pretty well. But mm-hmm. it looked like Villanova really buckled down this time around. Yeah, absolutely. And it was reminiscent It was reminiscent of the Butler game a, a little bit. They were actually able to get some key stops. And even though Xavier did have a few open looks, especially from the weak side, they weren't hitting anything. And especially from deep, they were 6-32 of 32 from deep overall in the game, 1-12 of 12 in the second half. That is bad. And especially for a team that revolves around guard play and lauds itself on, you know, pre, uh, on deep shooters and having absolutely no front court, it's a recipe for disaster. You're never, gonna, you're not going to win. The, the fact that it was even close for most of the game, it, it's just a testament as to how 
good they really are. But when you're shooting like that, you're never going to win. Definitely. The other thing that impressed me too, joke about Villanova being a three-point dependent only team, you know, shoot them up, sleep in the streets, this and that. But their interior play was fantastic. They owned the paint, really. They doubled down on Xavier, outscoring them in the paint, 36 to 18. And that's... Mm -hmm. That's big whenever you can do that, whenever you can capitalize. Villanova, the shots from deep weren't falling early. So, hey, you know, let's take a step back, reevaluate our game plan, and now let's take it inside, and maybe the outside will reopen itself. Yeah, we actually worked inside out for once, not outside in. And it definitely showed against Xavier's thin front line. It did feel like that we were getting out-rebounded, though, especially on the offensive end. But the numbers say otherwise. It was 34-33 to for rebounding for Xavier, but they did have 12 offensive boards compared to our three. So, I mean, I guess you can say, yeah, I'll take the point. I'd rather outscore them 36 to 18 in the paint than get out-rebounded by nine offensive boards. So you you take the good with the bad, but I guess that just shows that we played good defense when they did get the offensive boards anyway. They weren't able to make anything of it. Yeah, definitely. I I think anyone would take the good straight-up defense. You know, you might lose the rebounding battle. I think that makes the under 30% performance for Xavier that much more impressive for Villanova's defense. Yeah, for sure. You look at Xavier, their star guys could not get it going at all. You look at Trayvon mm-hmm. Blewett, Edmund Sumner, both those guys have been carrying the team so far offensively. They combined for only 21 points, but most notably, they only shot 5 of 25 between the two of them. You're a numbers guy. 20% isn't all that impressive. No, it's that's bad for middle school. It's terribly inefficient and we preach about efficiency every podcast that is not how they get it done and it was funny it felt like getting a little bit of deja vu Sumner went down with an injury initially came off the court uh holding his shoulder it looked like it was he like popped it or like out of its socket or something but he was able to come back in obviously and play the rest of the game but it was just like really again yeah he just has bad luck with that just like i i don't know i just happen to get injured every time (laughs) (laughs) that's right that's right he must not want to play in the pavilion for the rest of his career he might just he's better off just sitting that way he doesn't get hurt in any way shape or form yeah we need to get him like a hamster ball when he plays basketball (laughs) i don't know how he's gonna catch or shoot but at least he'll be safe safety first i mean he can play good defense that's a that's a wide range isn't it those bubbles yeah yeah Yeah, you're right and he could play some good defense but other than that can't do much you look at the blue corner the other end of the court chris jenkins is you know, I was saying it before, give him the first half of the season, but when the second half comes, New Year, he's going to turn it around. And he dialed it up again with a big 20-point performance, four of eight from beyond the arc, and six rebounds. He looked real good. He did, and we were going back and forth on him during the game that he actually, he has woken up. I think he's back. He is officially locked in. It just took him a few more games in the Big East to actually get him going. And a little bit scary, though. He did. It looked like he had suffered a concussion toward the end of the game there. I forget. He went up for a rebound. Like, oh, it was Josh's one-handed rebound. And Chris Jenkins also went up for it as well. But a Xavier player went up for it as well. I forget who it was. And then as they both went down, the Xavier player elbowed him in the head. I don't think he went back in for the rest of the game, but I don't think he's in concussion protocol. I think the team would have said something, but that was a little bit scary too. As someone who's been concussed before, I can tell you when I saw that, I was like, oh, he's definitely seeing stars right now. Hopefully yeah. he's okay. Yeah, I mean, really, he was like hunched over and like holding his eyes. Like, yeah. you're, you're just like, all right, got to get him off the court. Like, come on, this is, don't you have spotters for this or something? Yeah, get this man a Powerade, <laughs> get, get him hydrated. Let's let's keep him off his feet. Yeah, and the uh, smart move by Jay not to put him back in if he didn't go back in. 
I don't think he did. And then Josh Hart, he was a little slow in the beginning, but he started to heat up. Pretty much followed the path of the game for Nova. 20 points, 6 rebounds, 4 assists. He's also a good passer. He had a few nice dimes last night. Yeah, he did. He had he had that one on through the Xavier zone where it was like Daryl did like a backdoor cut and the front the back guy sucked up a little bit and he found him on an absolute dime on a bounce pass. Absolutely beautiful. And this is something that he hasn't shown in the past. He he can facilitate. When he wants to, he can facilitate. And I think this team is going to need that, especially down the road, because it can't all just come from jail and run in the point. So. Yeah, and that, that also just kind of is a testament to his versatility and his well-roundedness as a player. He's not just mm-hmm. a pure scorer that many think of him as being. He can also rebound, and he can also dish it out. I mean, we, he had that triple-double earlier in the season, but mm-hmm. it's something that he can consistently do, which I think makes him more of a threat than as if he was to just drop 30 a night. Right. I, I agree. I'd rather see him have the stat line he did now than to have like 30 points and have nothing else to show for it. I agree. But I think, you know, just like you said, I, I loved Dante DiVincenzo's performance on Tuesday. I thought he was fantastic. 32 Mm -hmm. minutes. He had to play extended minutes as Bridges was in foul trouble for a good amount of the game. And he delivered. He was smart with the ball. Didn't do anything too risky. He got his rebounds, played good defense. And he was efficient, which was, you know, when when you get that opportunity and you take and make your shots, they'll definitely show up on film. Right. And, yeah, it showed up on film. And and Jay realized it immediately and kept him in longer. I know Bridges was in foul trouble, so he had to play the extended minutes, like you said. But I think Jay rewarded him as well because he realized that Dante came out firing and played with a lot of energy as I mentioned before I'm one of his harshest critics and I know you're a pretty harsh critic of his as well so I think we got to give credit where credit is due he played a good game we're gonna need performances like that especially if we're gonna have a short bench for the rest of the year one last major storyline from Tuesday night it was also the first game back for Xavier senior guard Miles Davis who was reinstated to the team after serving a semester-long suspension in regards to a domestic dispute that arose during the offseason between Davis and his former girlfriend, Kylie Stoll. And he was arrested for what originally looked like domestic violence back in July, but by the end of the case, it has been downsized to disorderly conduct. There was a settlement and a plea deal. He had to take anger management classes. While the investigation was underway, there was a protective order filed by Stoll against Davis that is set to last for three years. Chris, what are your thoughts on this whole debacle, this whole case, this whole Miles Davis story? Well, I'm not really too educated on this incident, so I'm not going to try and make a complete statement on it without that way I don't come off as ignorant or whatever. But I was pleasantly pleased that the crowd booed him every time he touched the ball. Every time he went up for a rebound, whatever it was, like booze rained on him. And it obviously affected his play. Played 13 minutes, so it seemed like he was trying to get eased back into the action. And he didn't hit one shot. 0 for 5, he grabbed one board and even turned the ball over once. So it definitely got to him, whether he wasn't in the right state of mind because of obviously what's been going on in his life, or maybe the crowd got to him, maybe a combination of both. But he wasn't right, and good. Now, Davis, we you know we know him. We followed him for the last couple of years. He's a pretty important piece for that Xavier team. He was a big part of last year's historical season for the Musketeers. Just around 11 points per game. One of the leaders, vocal leaders, and just facilitators on the court. Very important. Very important guy. 
on Tuesday's episode, or what would have been Tuesday's episode, we put him on blast. We put Xavier on blast. We put him on blast. We're, we're, we're about to do the same here. We're about to do the same here. Not not as intense as we had a couple days ago or what should have been a couple days ago. Just seeing him on the court and actually seeing him out running around, dribbling the ball, it just reaffirmed to me that I just feel like Xavier missed – they missed their mark. I feel like they really could have done more here. Domestic violence is no joke. We see it in college and pro sports. We see how all these different leagues are cracking down on it now. And I feel like as a Catholic institute, Xavier missed their mark. I felt like they could have made a bigger message. They could have really laid down the hammer here. They pulled it back a little bit. And I felt like this message just wasn't enough. Yeah, I I happened to agree with you on that too. I felt it should have been longer. I even told you I think it should have been the whole year. Loses eligibility. But I think they didn't give him the whole year because, well, they pleaded out of court and they got a downgraded so obviously it doesn't look as bad but i also think that it was senior year also had something to do with it as well i feel like if he was a junior and this happened i feel like he's suspended the whole year because xavier does have a track record of actually going to the fullest extent here of disciplining their own players and if it was a junior year they'd spend the whole year and then he's back for a senior year but i feel like since it was a senior year they didn't want to completely screw him out of it and for whether you think that's right or wrong that's up to you, but I, like I agree with you. I feel like they missed their mark as well. Now, in regards to the case itself, there was no actual evidence that Davis actually struck Stoll. However, you know, in the statement that Stoll provided when getting the protective order, she said this, quote, He has put his hands on me and has punched holes through my wall. He has punched through my windows. He has threatened me. He continues to email me. Although I've told him I want no contact. Now, so far, the actual, you know, he's threatened her. He's harassed her. He's broken her cell phone, hit the side of her car, broke, I think it was a side mirror or a side door or something like that. Unfortunately, I think if there's something I've learned from this case, we see Xavier fans welcoming him back with open arms. And we see a lot of victim blaming, a lot of harassment towards her that she is an inconvenience to Davis when I feel like this, that's, this is the problem with domestic violence cases. Unfortunately, society has become geared to the point where we actually need to see a video for something to happen. You look at the Ray Rice case. You look at the Greg Hardy case. With Greg Hardy, everyone called the girl that was in question or that was involved with Hardy a gold digger or she was just looking to get her payday, looking to get a cut, looking to walk out with her millions. No one really gave her much credence. But then once the case was settled and the photos came out afterwards, a lot of people were quick to backtrack about how they felt about Hardy and how they felt about the girl. And they started to sympathize. And you look at what happened at Oklahoma with this video coming out of Mixon punching his girlfriend. That became a big issue. And I feel like that's that's part of the problem. Unfortunately, domestic violence doesn't have to just be physical. In fact, the... U.S. Department of Justice, our Department of Justice, defines domestic violence as a pattern of abusive behavior in any relationship that is used by one partner to gain or maintain power and control over another intimate partner. Domestic violence can be physical, sexual, emotional, economic, or psychological actions or threats of actions that influence another person. This includes any behaviors that intimidate, manipulate, humiliate, isolate, frighten, terrorize, coerce, threaten, blame, hurt, injure, or wound someone. It, it just lays it out right there. Our own law 
lays it out right there that it doesn't have to be physical in order for it to be domestic violence. There's a lot of stigma that goes around victims, and this is why they're, they're afraid to report. And this girl comes out, and everyone's on her case. Everyone's antagonizing her. Everyone's viewing her as this nuisance for Davis. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's part of the problem. And that's an unfortunate part of the problem because, you know, not all fans, not all Xavier fans, but there's this desire for a video to come out in order for it to be concrete. In reality, I mean, in this case, there was a lot of mental, there was a lot of emotional. You can't just water it down to just him breaking phones because there was a lot more than that going on. I mean, the girl was clearly threatened, humiliated, intimidated. And while he might not have struck her, she did say that he has put his hands on her. So, you know, whether or not that meant pushing, grabbing, it's still not right. It doesn't make it right. And this is just a poor example that you're setting forth, especially when you're a university who in the last five years, you've had now four cases in the last five years. You had Des Wells, who had rape charges filed against him. Granted, after the investigation, he was acquitted of it, but the university did kick him out and he ended up going to Maryland. Then you had Jalen Reynolds a couple years ago before the Sweet 16 game that Xavier was a part of. Rumors and speculation started coming out that he was involved in a domestic violence dispute. He was investigated for that, eventually cleared. But then you have J.P. Mercura. Last year, as we know, he, he exposed himself, acted in an appropriate manner in public, and now, shortly after that, you have Davis. Granted, some of these cases have been resolved, but you're getting this track record. You're piling up your players, one after the other, five years, four incidents. That's that's just not a good look. It's just not a good look. No, it's it's bad optics for sure. But they, they did go the fullest length in trying to correct the issue with everyone with everyone prior to Davis. So I don't understand why his was different than everyone else's. I mean, his situation seemed just as serious, if not more serious than everyone else's, as you mentioned. I mean, Mercura's you can just chalk up to as a drunk knight, but the other two should be taken with serious in serious manners. But I think what you said before is very true. I think the fact that this was a, since this was more of a mental and psychological thing, there really is no video or physical evidence to show uh, the extent of the altercations that went on between Davis and his significant other. So I think that's kind of why he kind of got off a little bit easier. And I think that's why so many fans, especially Xavier fans, were so dismissive of the whole thing. One thing that we talked about over the weekend and you showed me, which was kind of disturbing. I guess it was disturbing. The There was a lady who tweeted out a picture of her young daughter. She was sleeping and over her bed was a makeshift poster of Miles Davis and the caption of the tweet was, can't wait to tell her the good news, he's back. Now, that that's just bad. I, I mean, it's a little disturbing. Like, How as a mother can you be so dismissive of these charges that were eventually settled upon of a man who plays college basketball for your favorite college team and you're basically giving him a free ride and like allowing your daughter to idolize him? That's... That's how this problem continues to grow a little bit. I'm not, all right, maybe you could chalk it up as one bad mistake, but how many bad mistakes is there? Is it going to be until an action is taken? And as a mother, why would you do that? I mean, I'm not here to like comment on your parenting, but I just, I feel like that's kind of wrong. It was definitely unsettling when I saw that tweet and I shared it with you. I could not believe it. I mean, how do you have, that's like having a picture of Greg Hardy over your, your young daughter's, 
bedside. Like, like, what are you telling your daughter? Like, like you're just following the suit here of letting him off a little lightly. Domestic violence is domestic violence, whether it's physical or emotional or mental. How do you allow that? Like, what kind of example are you setting forth? How are you, you know, how are you going to tell your daughter you can be a strong woman, but it's okay to be harassed? Like, I don't know. How do yeah. you, like, how do you do that? Like, I don't, I don't get it. Yeah, I don't, I don't get it either. And I even saw that you got into a Twitter fight, I guess, the Twitter fight with an Xavier fan who basically passed this whole incident off as just breaking cell phones. They did more than they should have uh, in terms of Xavier suspending him for a whole semester. And I'm like, all right, you know, he didn't beat his wife like Greg Hardy did, but this was pretty bad. It's a domestic violence incident. He, He did more than just break cell phones. Like, get over it. How far are you going to go to defend someone on a college team for for this? Where it's it's college; these are young kids. They shouldn't. They should be held to the standards of like every, just as everyone else. Just because they play a college sport doesn't give them a free pass. Just like the pros, like just because they play a sport doesn't mean they should get a free pass either. Uh, I, I was shocked at the extent of the dismissal of so many so many fans out there. I thought they would have taken this a little bit seriously. Yeah, and I think that's that's a part of why you know we're we're talking about it now. Is yeah, I did get into that Twitter debate, that Twitter argument with that Xavier fan, and I told him, you know, if this was Josh Hart, if this was Chris Jenkins, and they had a domestic violence thing hanging over their head, they're out. I don't, I don't care if you're National Player of the Year, All Big East, All Final Four. I don't care what you're accolades or resume is you know in a hypothetical situation if Hart or Jenkins got themselves wrapped up in domestic violence I'd be disappointed and I wouldn't want them on my basketball team I would not want them there especially you see how Hart and Jenkins campaign for treating women the right way they have the it's on us Nova campaign and then the not in our locker room campaign if I saw that that they did something that was just flat out hypocrisy. I want them gone. The fact that you don't hold that standard over your team or over your players, it wasn't just breaking phones. There was a lot more to that. I mean, it just kind of goes and reflects how there's so much stigma in victim in you know in being the victim and getting blamed for it and being the quote unquote inconvenience for Miles Davis. At the end of all this, you know, the only things I can hope for is that Davis learns his lesson. And that stole, you know, her and her family finds peace in all this and that they're able to heal from this event and from this case and from the investigation and all that. Kind of hope that both parties heal from this. Lessons are learned and it doesn't happen again. That's literally all you can really hope for here. Yep, same here. Oh, but I do want to bring up one thing. At the end of the game, Miles Davis hacked up a shot with about, I don't know, 10 seconds left. And it fell short. As he put up this shot, Bill Rafferty, of all people, a man who I absolutely love as an announcer, said to the extent I'm paraphrasing that he wanted the ball to go in so that he can see Miles Davis get going and he hopes for the best for him. How, how, didn't we just have an incident with Brent Musburger a week or two ago? He had said he also, he wished the best for Forget the kid's first name. Mixon? The last name was Mixon. You mentioned him before. He, yeah, Mixon. Joe Mixon. Yeah, he said he wished the best for Mixon and hopes he goes to the NFL draft and becomes a big star and whatever. And he got severe backlash for it. And he actually, Musburger actually went on the air like a few minutes later and defended himself for saying that. And I'm just like sitting there. I'm like, oh my God. He, Rafferty basically did what he just did. And 
I know Mixon's incident was, I, I guess it was much more severe because there was an actual video that came out and he broke his hand or no, he didn't break his hand. He broke her face or something like that from punching her, his girlfriend. And I'm just like, holy crap. <laughs> like this is two announcers now that have defended or have been on the side of domestic violence abusers. And I'm just like, come on, like you don't need that. You know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, that just kind of, Shows two things. One, it goes back to that whole, for many people, for some reason, they don't give credence to domestic violence cases because there was no physical damage done or there was no flat out evidence of physical damage being done, which is a shame. It's it's honestly a shame. It's a shame that people don't take these cases more seriously, even when there's mainly mental and emotional damage done. Pretty unfortunate. And secondly, the other thing with Fox Sports 1 announcers, I think it was Gus Johnson and Bill Raftery that night. Mm-hmm. For a while, they did not say why Davis was out. They just said that he was coming back from a suspension or that this was his first game back, but they didn't say why. And I feel like that was a little irresponsible on their part. I, I don't know if they were told to not say anything right. or you know what the deal is with their producers. You're a broadcaster. At the end of the day, you still are a news person. You still are a journalist and a reporter. You got to give the facts and you know you can say why. You can say why he wasn't there because the fans, the fans gave the people watching at home, they gave him a little reminder why. Yeah, and Gus Johnson even found himself in hot water during the Big Ten Championship. He had made a statement that came off a little bit insensitive because he said something along the lines of football being the healing process for Penn State and for the victims and the whole child abuse thing that happened over there many years ago. And a lot of people got in his case for it, so it's just I don't know. I don't know what it was. Maybe they they probably told him just not to say anything because you could have gotten yourself in the hot water, you know, pleading the fifth almost with that. Or maybe they just didn't know the extent of what it was. I mean, I'm sure they did, but or maybe they just didn't want to say it themselves. I don't know. It was just it was an odd circumstance for sure. We will certainly see Xavier again. This time it'll be on the road at the Cintas Center, and you know I'm sure. By then, Miles Davis will be fully acclimated to being on the court. We'll see how that goes. We'll see, you know, if anything else comes up from this. But for now, you know, taking it back to basketball. Next up for Villanova, they've got a pair of games coming up. First one's against St. John at MSG. Then after that, they'll pick on Seton Hall as part of the Big East Marathon on Martin Luther King Day. First up with St. John's this Saturday. The Johnnies are in 10 this season. Since starting Big East play with back-to-back wins, including a big upset over Butler, they've lost three straight going into Saturday's matchup with Nova. What are your thoughts on the Red Storm? How do you think they're looking going into the weekend? They are a young team, and we may have mentioned this plenty of times during the Big East preview show. They are a young team. They are on the upward trajectory. Mullen has a bright future with this young core that they have. They only feeling have one senior on the roster, and just from gathering what's been talked about on WFAN in New York, they a lot of fans are excited for St. John's now and for the future. They are one of the top shot blocking teams in the country. I mean, they always have been. I remember in our years at Villanova, they always had some tall guys who protected the rim with the best of anyone. And I think Chris Obekpo was one of those guys. He was, he was pretty good. He was, he was pretty good. He was very good at what he did. I mean, pure defense and shot blocking only don't ask him to do anything else. Right. Fortunately, he caught a case of the herbal medicinal. 
Right. An unfortunate end for him there. But the Red Storm right now, they have an intimidating defensive front court in 6'7", Kasum Yakwe, and 6'11", Tennessee transfer Tariq Owens. Both averaging two and a half blocks per game. They are defensive specialists. On top of that, they have a fantastic freshman tandem starring Marcus Lovett. He's averaging 17.6 points per game. 47 shooting 47% from the field and 43% from deep. He's a good player and he kind of was under the radar. I don't really remember looking much into him going into the year. I mean, the guy I'll talk about next was the big get for St. John's, but Lovett has played very well and has exceeded expectations. So the next guy, the big get for St. John's was Shamori Pons, New York City native. He was the biggest preseason pick for Rookie of the Year. He's the hometown guy, highly touted coming out of high school and is delivering right now, averaging 17.5 points per game. And lastly, Bashir Ahmed, averaging 12.3 points per game, has a team high 5.6 boards and shoots around 38% overall and from deep. So St. John's, they've, they've got a core. They've got a good young core. Honestly, they remind me of the Yankees right now. <laughs> they have a bunch of young guys <laughs> who are just trying to find their roles. I mean, you have the one stud with Shamori Pons. I guess you can equate that Gary Sanchez. And then you don't really have that many old guys anymore. Everyone's kind of, you know, in their prime or just getting into their prime. They might not be the best team out there. But they do have some good players, and I think they will eventually put it all together down the road. But this year will just be part of the learning process. Yeah, right now they only have one senior on the roster, which is mind-blowing, really. Yeah, and they were such a senior-laden team when we were there. It seemed like every year they Steve Lavin just needed at least five seniors in the starting lineup or else he would lose his mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now it's the complete opposite. Now their core is a, a you know, stud freshman tandem. And then they got a few sophomores too. It's they honestly I like I like where St. John's is going. They're headed in an upward trajectory. I I'd, I'd mm-hmm. say in a couple years, two or three years they'll, they'll be really good again. But for right now, I mean, I I just don't see them upsetting Nova. I just right. don't see it. Yeah, neither do I. I remember last year's game at the Garden was close for the first few minutes actually. I think relatively late into the first half St. John's was hanging around, and I remember Bridges had that crazy dunk. He came out of nowhere. I forget if it was on a lay, on a missed shot or if he just took it himself. But he uh, he came flying in, and that was kind of the momentum changer, and then Villanova kind of ran away with it from there. I'll expect more of the same. Maybe the Johnnies keep it close initially, but I think Villanova runs away with it. Yeah, I would totally see the three-point shots falling. I mean, uh, obviously, you can't go inside too much when you got Owens and Yakwe in the middle. So I think the three ball will be very big in this one. And so far, Villanova's been shooting it pretty well. A little slow to start against Xavier, but, you know, St. John's isn't as talented right now. They're a tricky team. They beat Butler, but then they also got upset by LIU Brooklyn about a month ago. So you just don't know what you're going to get. No, you don't. And it's kind of, I mean, but that's part of the learning process with them. When you're a young team, you're very volatile. It's a different effort every night. Um, so, I mean, Mullen's doing the best he can with them, I have to say, so far. And I think if they if they continue, like, improving each and every game, you know, they might not show up in the records, but, like, a lot of 
high school kids take note of what's going on at St. John's. I think a lot of kids are going to want to go there. And with New York being such a hotbed for basketball and producing a lot of big prospects in the past few years, this it might work out well for them. So once again, tip-off is at Saturday at noon. We got an early one. Get some brunch. Maybe you wake up, get some breakfast, <laughs> sit down, crowd around your TV, or maybe go into the city and just enjoy it. Are, are you going into the city? I will be going into the city. I will be covering the game for Big East Coast Bias. Honestly, as I was thinking about it, I was like, man, should have sent a writer for view, BetsWab.com. What was I doing? I, I didn't realize that the kids were still on break. Missed opportunity on this one. Damn. Oh, well. But maybe you could just bring – just go as yourself. <laughs> for view, BetsWab, you have two press passes. <laughs> Yeah, maybe maybe I might dual wield. Who knows? We'll see. We'll see how yeah. it goes. Okay. All right. Well, have fun. Thank you. Thank you. It's good. It'll be good to be back at the garden. Yes, for sure. So after that, Villanova will come home, and they'll have another game two days later this Monday on Martin Luther King Day. Villanova will be playing Seton Hall as part of the big Big East Marathon. Huge day for the conference and Fox Sports 1. Now, Villanova has a little bit of a history on MLK Day. How do they? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, <laughs> it's the kind of history that you want to forget. It's the kind of history you want to forget. Two years ago was the last time Villanova played on Martin Luther King Day, and they got smacked by Georgetown at the Verizon Center. Then the year before that, at the Wells Fargo Center, that was when Doug McDermott, Ethan Raggy and the boys showed up and gave Villanova fans an unforgettable performance, but but for all the wrong reasons. Not, not, <laughs> not nothing good. Nothing good came out of that. Raggy bombs came out of that. Like I don't even know what they shot, but it felt like they shot ninety nine percent. Yeah, they they hit everything. It was just uh, that was a miserable day. I I had never seen the Wells Fargo Center so quiet, especially even with. The couple thousand people in attendance, it was it was wow. You could have heard a pin drop in there. Yeah, were you there? You were there. I was there. And were you there as a you, fan? I was there as a fan, and it was possibly the most depressing game I'd ever attended. Wow. Yeah, I I was one of the few people that stayed back that day. I forget why. I don't think I won the lottery. Actually, I think I didn't get a ticket. Honestly, you made the right call. It yeah. wasn't even fun making fun of Doug McDermott anymore. It no. just wasn't fun. Nothing was fun about that game. No. I mean, it, was, it and Creighton was unranked, too. So it was like you tried to get, like, hype for it. And you're like, oh, well, Creighton's unranked. We're going to steamroll him anyway. Who cares? And then they did that. And it was just uh, just very depressing. But at least you knew their fate before before the end of the first half. So you kind of just accepted it by then. What was terrible was that Villanova started to come back slowly. And then they just got pushed all the way back down. And then boom. Oh, yeah. Oh, wait. That's right. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they like cut the lead from thirty to twenty in the first half. And I'm like, congrats, guys. Let's. And then I'm sure Jay's like, great effort, good job, attitude. And then we got steamrolled, but that's yeah. okay. Yeah, They'll you had all... the the good job, good effort, kids sitting in there in the stands. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the, but all is forgiven now. It's okay. Yeah, none of that matters anymore. No. no. Which also made me realize last year they did not play a Martin Luther King Day, which was probably for the best. Yeah, thank God. And of course, it has to be the year we win everything. So maybe it has something to do with that. Maybe we should stop playing on Martin Luther King Day. <laughs> so in this rematch of the 2016 Big East Tournament Final, no Isaiah Whitehead, 
no Ryan Archie Diacono, no Daniel Ochefu. What can we expect from the Seton Hall Pirates and this game overall? Seton Hall is a very solid defensive team and rebounding team. They're just outside of the top 40 in defensive efficiency, according to Ken Palm. They held opponents to just 31% from three-point from, from three range. That's, that's, that's awfully good. I remember Villanova's always had trouble against that. I mean, we always make mention of Villanova has trouble against Seton Hall, but it always seemed that they just can't hit from deep. It always seems that that's always been the buckaboo as to why we can't beat Seton Hall. So definitely keep an eye out for that. They do like to work it inside. I mean, they're a very guard-heavy team, but Angel Delgado is one of their best players, and he's doing a lot inside. But finally, I made mention last week that we always seem to be playing a good free-throw shooting team. But finally, we get a team that is horrible, horror-awful from the free-throw line. Real bad. Six, real, real bad. 61%. As a team, that's really, really bad. That puts them at 340th in Division One out of 350-something teams. And they're also very prone to turning the ball over. They give it up on nearly 20% of the possessions. That's 240th in the country. So every five times Seton Hall grabs the ball, expect them to turn it over. Yeah, you know, uh, 60%. That's uh, that's that's not passing for for many teachers. No, no, not at all. And but they have guards, so it's not like it's not like they have like three centers like the Sixers or anything who are shooting free throws all the time. They, they got they got guards, and the guards are terrible at the free throws too. Yeah, and and the thing is, is that you know a few of them are slashers, and if you're a slasher, yeah. you're supposed to be good at the free throw line. Right, because that means you're getting to the line. You're going to get fouled going in the basket. Making mention of those slashers, let's highlight a few of them. So we got Kadeem Carrington. He is probably my least favorite player in the Big East. I hate him. <laughs> <laughs> he just he shouldn't be good, but every time he plays Villanova, it's an automatic 20 points with three clutch frees. It's just, oh, I hate him. I, well, actually, Isaiah Whitehead was my most hated player, but he's now gone. And before that was Sterling Gibbs, and he's now gone. So now, Kadeen, congratulations. You now have that honor. So, yeah, he used to be a slasher from what – if anyone's ever watched Villanova Seton Hall games, you realize he always goes to the basket. But now he's actually touched up his three-point game a lot. He's shooting uh, 47% from deep, 48% from the field overall, and is averaging 18.7 points per game. He is their star. Um, now that Whitehead's gone, he now has the ability to facilitate and actually do things he wants to do instead of just, you know, giving the ball to Isaiah and saying, here, Isaiah, do go do things that will make you a second-round pick on the Brooklyn Nets. Um, another guard... <laughs> For Seton Hall is Desi Rodriguez, another slasher. He is my second least favorite player in the Big East. He is he can occasionally pop threes, but don't expect him to. Expect him to go to the rim. Don't fall for the pump fake. Yeah, don't fall for the pump fakes. Fifteen and a half points per game and five point three boards per game. And then Angel Delgado. Man, oh man, is he another thorn in our side? Always Always seemed to give Chef a game, no matter what it was. Always seemed to give him biz. Even though Chef was clearly superior, Delgado would still put up numbers, and you're just like, are you freaking kidding me? And he's a flopper. He's not a a big guy at all. And he is a flopper. Yeah, you're right. That was two years ago at the game I was at at Prudential Center when he just flopped, and then people claimed he got stepped on. I don't remember. But he is a double-double machine. He is a good player. Not uh, not, going to lie. 
averaging just under 15 points per game, grabs just under 12 boards per game, and is shooting 58% from the floor. So as I mentioned before, they do do their damage inside, so keep an eye out for that. And with Daryl on him, it might be a little tough of an assignment, so we'll see if they'll double-team him once the ball goes into the post. Collectively, Carrington, Rodriguez, and Delgado shoot just under 60% from the free-throw line, as we mentioned. Just mentioning that to reinforce how bad they are because it is actually comical. But don't worry. We'll foul them off. And they'll go to the line 20 times. They'll hit it 18 times. Don't worry. <laughs> I guarantee it. Well, actually, no, this is at Villanova, so maybe not. But if this was at Prudential Center, they would go 18 of 20 for the line. <laughs> I, I would agree with that sentiment. You know how I feel about the Pirates. There's just something about them. Something about them just makes me sad. Being at that Big East final game last year just like abs- was like the exclamation point. Because their fans are just they, – they, their fans suck. I'm sorry. I hate them. They're like – I, I, they're typical. Oh, forgive me when I say this, but Jersey trash. But Chris, you're from Jersey. I know they're the people who everyone looks at, like Jersey Shore, and is like, "Oh, that's New Jersey. Oh, that's Seton Hall fans." <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, "Oh no!" Like, like you are the type of people that makes me not to be proud from the state. So, <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I, I, I don't hate them that much. I am actually. Okay with that. My parents went to Seton Hall Law School, so I can't hate them completely. Wow. Yeah. So much. So, so much has come out in the last five minutes. I'm sorry. I had to get <laughs> it out. I've had a rough day. <laughs> Even though it's only, what, 8, 7.30 in the morning? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, it's been a rough one. <laughs> I, I'll be honest. I don't know what it is, but I just really love Angel Delgado. I think he's great. I, <laughs> of course you do. As, as much as I can't stand – the rest of the Seton Hall Pirates, especially because Seton Hall is the only team that's beaten Villanova at least once each year since conference realignment. I don't know what it is. He's not big, but he plays real tough. I think he's about 6'7", six, 6'8". Six, and you mentioned it before. He was rumbling with Chef, no problem. Yeah, he is. He's good. And they're all state – well, now they're not sophomores. They're juniors now. But that, the big thing last year was when they won the Big East title was that they're all sophomores. They got this big four of sophomores. And then I'm like, well, Whitehead's leaving, so see you later. And the other three, I mean, I don't know how good they're going to be, but they, they've obviously proved standalone that they can be good and that Whitehead actually was a problem. <laughs> yeah, well, we can, we can give you a speech on why Isaiah Whitehead was not that good. Yeah. But we'll save that for another time. Oh, we also forgot to mention, they got, they got a big freshman too, uh, Miles Powell. Trenton native, and he is a uh, three-point specialist. And he actually hits free throws. He's actually averaging 85% from the line. Yeah, I would say that that's always a good sign. It's always a good sign. Yeah, for sure. Who you have in this one? Before, I, I was, you know, I said this in the preview show. I said Villanova easily, but there's just something about MLK Day. There's just something about MLK. We could be playing DePaul, and DePaul will beat us. But, but Eugene, we did play DePaul, and they almost did beat us. And yeah, it wasn't see, MLK that, Day. Yeah, see, if that game was on MLK Day, we would have lost that game. <laughs> okay. Your <laughs> <laughs> alignment of the planets caused a four-point swing that causes us to lose to the ball. Angel Delgado will find a four-leaf clover in the dead of winter. Oh, stop. The morning of. Yeah, that's that's the type of stuff that uh, Seton Hall has going on. <laughs> in all seriousness though I, I I think Villanova wins I mean they should win this game I feel like they should shake off their Martin Luther King Day madness finally putting into all that and win I feel like they'll win this one 
Yeah, I agree. It's at it's at Villanova, so I don't really have. I'm not giving too much thought to it. If this was at Prudential Center, I might just give this to Seton Hall. But at home, Pavilion, it's just not going to happen. And they will buck the MLK Day trend. Just as a side note. It has nothing to do with Villanova basketball. I feel like bringing it up. MLK Day always seems to be the day after the Packers lose a devastating playoff game. So I've always connected it with that, and I've always used it as a day of mourning. And in the past few years, I've looked forward to Villanova basketball being a reprieve from that. Please, if the Packers lose this Sunday, please give me a win so I can start looking forward to this because – it's it hasn't worked out in the past because the day the the when they lost the when they got spanked by Georgetown two years ago that was the day after the Packers absolutely choked against Seattle and I that was probably one of the two two worst days I could ever remember being a sports fan so if that uh, when the Packers lose to Dallas in a devastating fashion this Sunday please Villanova beat beat my most hated team that's all I ask <laughs> Chris. I have a bit of a bright light for you. And that is? Should the Packers lose, just to know there's plenty more spots on the yacht to Miami. <laughs> you think they You think they left a seat for uh, Randall Cobb, Jordy Nelson, and all them with his broken ribs? Uh, hopefully. I would hope that Odell Beckham Jr. would would share. I would hope that he would at least share. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it is only wide receivers only. So, I, I mean, it's, it's the least he could do after punching a hole in the Packers stadium. I mean, yeah, that's true. That is true. As a as a uh, as a payback for punching the hole, we'll we'll give uh, we'll we'll he'll pay for everyone to go on a yacht trip just around the Caribbean. No big deal. Thanks, now, if Villanova loses, though, I, I I don't know what I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to uh, tell you. Yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do either. Technically, I have off MLK Day, but I'm, apparently I'm allowed to go to work and then use that day whenever I want as a floating holiday. So we'll see how this weekend plays out. But I do want to watch Big East basketball all day, so it, it, this is a tough call. <laughs> so we'll switch over. Switch it over to the women's team. They lost a tough one on Tuesday. They ventured down to Omaha to take on the Crane Blue Jays. Creighton hadn't lost the game at home so far this season, and that streak remains. A lot of streaks, a lot of streaks were maintained since, yeah. since, since our absence. Yeah, a lot of a lot of streaking going on. The Blue Jays took care of the Wildcats, winning this one, sixty to forty-six. Despite a not so great shooting performance in the first half, Villanova took a twenty-seven to twenty-five lead going to the break. But unfortunately, it all came apart in the third quarter as Creighton outscored the Cats. 21 to 9, and they just built on their lead from there. Chris, what stuck out to you in this game? That I picked them to win for the first time in like three weeks, and they lost, so I'm going to stop picking them. Um, <laughs> but something noteworthy to point out Creighton doubled down on Nova in the paint, outscoring them 32 to 16, which I think is the exact outscoring of the paint that Villanova did to Xavier on the men's side, I think. So had that going for Creighton, which. Pretty much spelled the end for Villanova. Villanova didn't shoot well the entire game. They were just 27% from the floor and 31.8% from deep. Again, those nights where you're cold and you're getting outscored inside and you're not getting to the line, it's just not going to work. When you look at Creighton, though, they shot just under 50% as a whole from the game. So if you're looking at it from the percentage 
wise, they they were just absolutely dominant. And then you look on the boards, Creighton out rebounded Villanova forty four to twenty six. A strong performance all around from Creighton, and especially at home where they just where they are unbeaten. Yeah, no, it, you know the odds were certainly against Nova going into this one, but I felt that from the from the momentum they had they had built from back to back wins that this that would be good enough to kind of you know get them going. And in the first half, you saw that even though they were shooting the ball well, they were able to get in front, and that's. You know, at the end of the day, you can shoot 30%, 20%, or 80%, and I'm sure you'll take the win over everything. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. that just could not – they could not sustain that lifestyle in the second half, and Creighton really made them pay for it in that third quarter. I mean, we had some key performances from Megan Quinn, who had 13 points, 6 rebounds, and 3 blocks. Samantha Wilkes added 11 points and 4 assists in the effort. Unfortunately for Nova, no one else was really getting it going. Everyone else had six or fewer points, and that is just a stark contrast from Creighton, who had at least four players in double figures. Marissa Janning looked great. She had 18 points and 10 rebounds, double-double for her. Brianna Rollerson and Sydney Lamberty both had 11 points and seven rebounds each. And then you had Audrey Faber, their top scorer going in. She had 10 points. So everyone, pretty, pretty well-balanced effort from the Jays. Yeah, bounce scoring on one end, not so bounce or any scoring on the other. And I'm shocked it was even this close. <laughs> just just looking at the stats. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's just weird what a run can do to you or how, you know, you, you go cold for maybe a stretch of the game and that can really decide it right there. Yeah, and it seems like in the women's game too that these stretches of and runs seem longer and like much more impactful. Than, than during the men's game. I don't know why. Uh, do you get that kind of same vibe too? I, I I do a little bit. I mean, especially when you look at like UConn play or some of you know some of those, like the top tier the top tier teams. Mm-hmm. You know when they when they get on a big run, they're burying you and they're not looking back. Right. Yeah. Usually with the men's games, they they usually the team getting ran on usually makes some form of comeback, but I don't know. Maybe it's just the talent disparity. You know, I also wonder if having quarters has something to do with it. Uh, That could, you know, you get that break in between the second half. Mm -hmm. And as you know, in comparison to the men's team, you just kind of play with it. You know, you just keep playing. Right. Yeah. I guess that has something to do with it. Be an interesting experiment. That's for sure. So the women's team is now six and nine, two and three in the big East. They also have a pair of games coming up this weekend. Like the men's team, they'll be taking on Seton Hall and St. John's, both at home at the Pavilion. First up is Seton Hall on Friday morning at 11.30 a.m. Who scheduled this? On a Friday? Friday morning, 11.30. And you know what that means. That means they're coming in at like 7 a.m. for like shooter. Oh, God. (laughs) Jeez. No, no... Thursday fun for them. No, no, not at all. Not at all. Curfew at like nine. Oh boy. Lights out lights out by nine fifteen. Well, have fun. Go, go to bed early. Make sure you drink some milk. It helps you go to sleep apparently. <laughs> but yeah, who's I don't understand, like eleven thirty AM. God. During the week. Like if it was a Saturday, I would Yeah, I'd, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That. If it, yeah, if it was Saturday or Sunday morning, all right, have at it. But how do you expect to have fans come over? Fans got to go to work on a Friday. 
Oh my god, I didn't even think of that. Jeez, it is gonna be empty. Is anyone gonna show up? It's gonna, I mean, the students are. Still I'm concerned. Off. The students are still off. Uh, I yeah, it's it's really strange. Oh boy. Well, hopefully, people actually show up for this because should be a good game. Yeah, the it, it'll be pretty evenly matched. I mean, the Pirates are eight and eight so far this season. They're one and four in Big East play. And they're coming into the pavilion after losing four straight Big East games. What can we expect from the Seton Hall Pirates? They don't really stick out in any category. They're pretty balanced across the board. So I'm just going to give you a few previews on a few of their players. So Jaquan Jackson, she's averaging 16.9 points per game. She is the team's leading scorer. And she takes she takes most of the shots. Um, she is the facilitator. The Isaiah Whitehead, if you will. Um, she's not the greatest from deep, she's averaging 30% from beyond the arc. She is getting the bulk of the load, and the offense runs through her. Then you have Kayla Hilaire. She's averaging just under 12 points per game. She mainly does her work inside and occasionally takes and makes a three, so she's a stretch forward. Um, she's averaging just under 39% from deep, but she'd rather work it inside and post up. Then you have Letitia Smith. She's averaging 9.5 points per game. Five and a half boards per game as well. She's another interior presence for Seton Hall. And you have Claire Lundberg averaging eight and a half points per game. And she is the three-point specialist. She's taken 85% of her shots from beyond the arc and has converted on 38% of them. That reminds me of that. Who was the player? I forget who he was on. He it's took... Raggy. No, it wasn't Raggy. Or maybe it was Raggy. I don't know. But someone took like... Oh, like nearly 100% of their shots from deep. I forget what it was. That, that was Raggy. Raggy. Did it was it. Raggy? Yeah. But I think there was someone else too. But yeah. So yeah, she's she's similar to that. But she's not averaging as much. But she does make a high percentage. So she's just not getting enough minutes, I feel like. So who do you got in this first game for the Lady Cats? I'll give it a Villanova. I know picking them usually means they lose. But <laughs> I feel like... At home against a struggling Pirates team in the Big East. I'll, I'll give it to Villanova. Yeah, I'm totally giving it to Villanova too. I think this will kind of be similar to the Providence game. Providence was ice cold going in. And Villanova was able to capitalize on that and beat them. I feel like this will be a good bounce back win for Villanova. Who will have a much tougher St. John's game on Sunday. 2 mm-hmm. p.m. tip off. You know, St. John's is currently 11-5, and 3-2 and two in Big East play. They're going to take on Georgetown tomorrow before taking on Nova. I feel like they're a much tougher team. What do you think? What do you see from just looking at the Red Storm? Unlike their male counterparts, they actually have seniors on this team, and two of them are by the far their best players, Jade Walker and Aaliyah Lewis. Walker's 6-1, listed as a forward. But she, she can play anywhere. She's their Mikhail Bridges, so to speak. She's definitely an all-conference type player and could potentially be in the running by the end of the year. Uh, she's averaging 19.8 points per game, 16.2 boards, and she's just a touch over 60% from the floor. She's going to be a handful. And I, I honestly, I can see her challenging some of the top-end players for this for the for. Big East player of the year. I can honestly see her winning with Shakit's up this type of performance. And then Aaliyah Lewis, she's quick and she is very savvy at the point guard position. She's averaging 12.8 points per game and averaging eight assists per game as well. She she can facilitate. She looks to create first and then she gets her own points on top of it. 
She's a very good player. And lastly, there's Akina Weller and Alicia Kebby. Both are three-point shooters, and they both average just under 10 points per game. Who do you got in this second game? This is this is at St. John's? No, it's at, it's at Nova. Both, ga- both games this weekend will be at Nova. Oh, they're at Nova? And you know what? It doesn't really make a difference for me. It, I, I'll, I'll give this one to St. John's. When you have a big potential Big East player of the year on your team, I think this should be you should give it to them. <laughs> you know, I just I think Villanova will beat Seton Hall, but I just don't see them beating St. John's. I could be wrong, but mm-hmm. I feel like St. John's is just too talented. I mean, they're they're pretty good. They're pretty solid this year. They're not they're no DePaul, but they are pretty good. They are pretty good. Yeah, they are. I feel like we don't advertise it enough, but. We do take fan questions. You know, you can tweet us, ask us anything, and we will talk about it on State of the Nova Nation. It's part of what we love to do. We love to give the listeners what they want. We have fielded lots of different questions. We've talked about basketball. We've talked about football. We've talked about our plans for the holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas. What was our New Year's resolution? We've fielded all these different kinds of questions, but we have not taken a question like this. And it's a pretty good one. It's pretty creative, Chris. Are you ready for this? Oh, I am ready. This one is from Business Obadi. I I don't know exactly how to pronounce it, but it's at M-K-L-B-R-D-G-S, which is pretty much Mikhail Bridges abbreviated. Now, we had this question last time. We wanted to answer it. Unfortunately, the recording went kaput. Hopefully, that doesn't happen this time. But his question is, if you have a tank with coral in it, can you call the coral your pet? Because it is an animal, but it isn't that. It's just wild. Just think about that. <laughs> <laughs> when, when we were discussing this on the uh, failed attempt episode, I made mention that isn't this just a pet rock at that point? Yes. Yes, I, it, I, I, think it, I think it is similar to that. It's its, it's cousin. <laughs> a distant, A very distant cousin. <laughs> So are you going to like put like googly eyes on it or anything or what? You put on some pipe cleaner for antenna. Yeah. <laughs> put on a fake mustache. It's it's perfect. I guess I, I guess it is a pet, but it's not an animal. So no. <laughs> you know, I say if it's your coral and it makes you happy to put that coral in a tank and you feel happy parading that tank with that coral in it around the house, and you want to call it your pet, go ahead. Go ahead. Do what makes you happy. Whatever. It, it is 2017. Any, anything is possible. If you want Coral as a pet, so be it. I would actually love to see that happen. If this if this person who asked us this question can make the Coral into a pet and do what we say with the uh, googly eyes and the pipe cleaners and, yeah. and send us a picture, I would greatly appreciate it. You know, or whatever arts and crafts you want to put on it. You know, yeah. it doesn't have to be googly eyes or a pipe cleaner or a fake mustache, whatever you want. Maybe you, maybe you want to put a little hat on it. Yeah, I was going to say use a thimble as a top hat. Oh, there you go. Beautiful. But yeah, no, I, I you know, I'd say it, it is totally your pet. It is in your tank and it's like a pet rock, but instead <laughs> it's your pet coral. Yeah, I'm all for it. Go, go for it. Send us a picture. That was a pretty interesting question. We never had anything like that before. Yeah, it was. I, I'd appreciate more of those, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, the random ones are the random ones are pretty good. The non basketball, football, sports ones. Right. I mean, we appreciate those too, and I love. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's just but, good to get a nice, diverse range. Yeah, 
what, what do we do? Like six different? We recap two and previewed four. It, it, it's nice to break it up a little. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Yeah, this one was a little jam packed. I mean, we had to make it up for Tuesday's absence. Right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening and subscribing to the State of the Nova Nation podcast, whether you do so on iTunes or on Podomatic. Once again, we apologize for Tuesday's absence. We hope that you've enjoyed today's show and that you check us out regularly from time to time. And also, please check us out at viewbenchmob.com for all your news and updates on all things Villanova sports. Also, please don't forget to follow us on the Twitter sphere at viewbenchmob. Or you can follow me, Eugene Repay, at eRepay5. And you can follow me, Chris Stanziel, at The Stance Man on Twitter. Nova Nation, happy Thursday. One more day away from Friday, and then the weekend. And some beautiful Big East basketball. I hope you get to enjoy it. Go Pack Go.